Man, look, I'm not old, but nothing makes you feel old than when medical terms that you trained with in residency become obsolete. I remember when in the gynecology world, menorrhagia and menomenorrhagia were real diagnoses. Of course, those have now become obsolete in favor of heavy menstrual bleeding and the palm coin system. Well, in obstetrics, things change as well. I trained with IUGR, which was intrauterine growth retardation. And then it went to intrauterine growth restriction. But IUGR has now been abandoned. The new term, of course, is FGR, or fetal growth restriction. And I turned with symmetric versus asymmetric growth restriction, and that's gone away. So in this podcast, we're going to review the SMFM brief on fetal growth restriction because, you know, you got to keep up with the data because we used to do biophysical profiles for fetal growth restriction. But biophysical profiles actually are not really good for predicting outcome with FGR babies. So let's talk about this. Are there ways to prevent fetal growth restriction? What about aspirin or other medications? And when should we do the best delivery option for them? Is it at 36 weeks, 37? And do they require C-section? We're going to answer all these questions in this new SMFM brief that's also part of the ABOG Maintenance of Certification reading list. Ready? Let's start our discussion of FGR. Welcome to Clinical Pearls. Fetal growth restriction, or FGR, can result from a variety of maternal fetal, and placental conditions. Chromosomal disorders and congenital malformations are responsible for about 20% of cases of FGR. Suboptimal perfusion of the placenta, however, is the most common cause of FGR, accounting for about 25-30% to of all cases. Now, FGR is actually not rare at all. It actually occurs in up to 10% of pregnancies and is a leading cause of infant morbidity and mortality. In fetuses at all gestational ages with weights below the 10th percentile, the stillbirth rate is about 1.5%, and that's twice the rate in fetuses with normal growth. With fetal weights that are below the 5th percentile, the stillbirth birth rate can be as high as 2.5%. Furthermore, infants with birth weights below the 10th percentile are more likely to have severe acidosis at birth, low 5-minute APGAR scores, and neonatal ICU admissions. Studies also report a 2- to 5-fold increased rate of perinatal death among preterm FGR fetuses compared with term FGR fetuses. And if that wasn't enough, there's also issues later on in life for those affected babies. It has been associated with metabolic programming that increases the risk of future development of metabolic syndrome and the consequent development of cardiovascular and endocrine diseases. FGR has also contributed to cardiac remodeling, leading to cardiovascular dysfunction that can persist into childhood and adolescence. So the take-home message here, guys, is that FGR isn't just an OB term, but it can also program some adverse issues later on in the affected child and in that life. Now, here's something else that's important to remember, that there's also rates of cognitive and learning disabilities that are higher in FGR children than those without FGR, and these have noted to be as high as 20 to 40% by school age. 
All right, now that we've laid down that intro, let's get into some specific terms like IUGR. Remember, that used to be intrauterine growth retardation, which just sounded terrible. And then it went to intrauterine growth restriction. But now the new term is FGR, just fetal growth restriction. And here's an important point to remember, that fetuses with fetal growth restriction are not always small for gestational age at birth, and small for gestational age neonates often have not been diagnosed as growth-restricted on prenatal ultrasound. A fetus is diagnosed with FGR. About 18 to 22% will be constitutionally small, but otherwise healthy at birth and have normal outcomes. A significant challenge, of course, in the prenatal management of FGR is trying to differentiate between who's constitutionally small and who is pathologically growth-restricted. FGR has been commonly diagnosed as an ultrasound EFW below the 10th percentile for gestational age. However, there actually is a lot of significant variation in the diagnostic criteria used for FGR. However, there is data that shows that using the abdominal circumference as a diagnostic criteria is actually pretty good for fetal growth restriction. So what does ACOG say and SMFM? Well, SMFM makes it very clear, and they recommend for FGR to be made as a diagnosis that you use the ultrasound EFW or the abdominal circumference that's below the 10th percentile for gestational age as a diagnostic criteria for FGR. Again, that's a clinical pearl. The diagnosis of FGR should be made either when the ultrasound EFW or abdominal circumference alone is below the 10th percentile for gestational age. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. All right, now we just made the case of how to diagnose FGR based on ultrasound EFW or abdominal circumference. But there's been some critics about this saying, hey, shouldn't we do that like by race or ethnicity? Because some races maybe have different sized babies than others. Well, that's actually been looked at. And when you actually compare the data for these population or race-specific nonograms, the truth is they're really not much better than using Hadlock alone. Two known studies that looked at this was the NICHD and the WHO studies that identified racial or ethnic differences in fetal growth. And although they did that, evidence to date indicates that the use of these new formulas in clinical practice, here it is, does not improve the detection or the outcome of fetal growth restriction. So according to SMFM, the best way to diagnose this isn't any specific nonogram, but just using regular old Hadlock formula. The Hadlock formula actually better predicted SGA and composite neonatal morbidity at birth and had a lower ultrasound to birth weight percentile discrepancy than other growth standards. So there it is. The Hadlock formula seems to do better at prognosticating adverse outcomes than other growth formulas. Fetuses classified as growth-restricted by Hadlock, but not by the NICHD growth standards, had significantly higher composite morbidity than fetuses of normal growth. 
So in view of this, SMFM states that the recommended way to do this FGR diagnosis is using just population-based fetal growth references like Hadlock to determine fetal weight percentages. All right, now we know how to diagnose FGR, right? That's 10th percentile for growth or less than 10th percentile of abdominal circumference using Hadlock formulas. Great, got it. But there's another distinction between FGR. There's early onset and late onset. Early onset FGR is diagnosed before 32 weeks and late onset is diagnosed after 32 weeks. Early onset FGR is typically more severe, tends to follow an established Doppler pattern of fetal deterioration, is more commonly associated with maternal hypertensive disorders, and shows more significant placental dysfunction than late onset FGR. Fetuses with genetic abnormalities can also present with early onset FGR, commonly in association with fetal and amniotic fluid abnormalities. Now, late onset FGR represents about 70 to 80% of FGR cases, so it's much more common and it is typically milder in presentation. Now, unlike the early onset FGR, late onset FGR is less likely to be associated with maternal hypertensive disorders and typically has less extensive placental histological findings of underperfusion. Now remember that fetal growth restriction is any estimated fetal weight less than the 10th percentile. But there's also severities of fetal growth restriction. Of course, the most severe is at less than the 3rd percentile. The presence of abnormal umbilical artery Doppler indices has been found to predict adverse perinatal outcomes. An estimated fetal weight below the 3rd percentile alone has also been associated with this increased risk of adverse perinatal outcomes, and that's irrespective of umbilical and middle cerebral artery Dopplers. Now, the risk of stillbirth at birth weights of less than the 3rd percentile was increased about threefold over the 3rd to 5th percentile group at all gestational ages. So what does that mean? Well, remember the clinical pearl. An estimated fetal weight below the 3rd percentile by itself has been found to represent a very severe form of FGR. Now, we're going to get into timing of, of these babies later on, but that's going to be one key issue. All right, so we figured out that there's different kinds of severity. There's less than 10 percentile, there's 10 to the 5th percentile, 5th to the 3rd percentile, and the most severe form is 3rd percentile or less. But one of the things that I trained with when I was a resident was symmetric or asymmetric fetal growth restriction. Now, in the past, these classifications was thought to provide some insight about the timing of the pregnancy insult and the etiology or the prognosis of the FGR. But more recent data has shown that growth and developmental delays have been evaluated from birth to the age of about four years, and they're actually similar for symmetric or the old asymmetric growth-restricted preterm newborns. So as of right now, we don't divide FGR into symmetric or asymmetric anymore because, furthermore, the HC to AC ratio, that was head circumference to abdominal circumference ratio that was typically used for that diagnosis, has actually been not found to be an independent predictor of adverse pregnancy outcome. So remember, they're either FGR or not, but symmetric and asymmetric has now been thrown out the window. Well, here's a question for you. If you've listened to my podcast before, you know I like my low-dose aspirin in pregnancy. There's a lot of advantages, even some data that helps prevent preterm birth. 
All right. But what about aspirin for FGR prevention? Does that work? Well, there's no current preventable strategies or treatments for FGR that have been proven effective. The use of prophylactic low-dose aspirin was shown to provide a modest risk reduction in FGR and SGA in two meta-analyses. That sounds great, right? However, this finding was not confirmed in the aspirin for evidence-based preeclampsia prevention trial called ASPRE, A-S-P-R-E, that was primarily designed for preterm preeclampsia prevention, but on secondary analysis, it actually didn't prevent FGR either. So due to the conflicting evidence on the role of low-dose aspirin in the prevention of recurrent FGR in otherwise low-risk women, ACOG and SMFM recommends against the use of low-dose aspirin for the sole indication of FGR prevention. Now, there's also been other medications that have been tried, but these are actually not endorsed either. So, just to be clear, there have been no studies that have shown any good preventative or treatment options for established FGR. So, SMFM recommends against the use of low molecular weight heparin for the sole indication of prevention of recurrent FGR, and it also recommends against the use of sildenafil or activity restriction for in utero treatment of FGR. Everybody good? So no low-dose aspirin, no Lovenox, no bed rest, and no off-label use of Viagra, which some studies have suggested, for the treatment or the prevention of FGR. All right, now that we've made it clear that there's no preventative or medical treatments of FGR, now we get into surveillance and management. So two quick clinical pearls right off the bat. The single most important prognostic factor in preterm fetuses with growth restriction is the gestational age at delivery. You may want to remember that for the MOC. The single most important prognostic factor in preterm fetuses with FGR is the gestational age at delivery. And we're going to get into Doppler use in just a minute because despite its limitations, there's accumulating evidence that suggests a benefit to the use of umbilical artery Doppler in the surveillance of FGR. And that's going to be a key component when we talk about indications for delivery. So remember, SMFM states the best way to surveil FGR is umbilical artery Doppler evaluations. And we're going to talk about that a little bit more in this podcast. All right, podcast family, now that we've covered symmetrical versus asymmetrical and how those actually don't matter, we do have to say something about a test for genetics in these cases, because this is an important issue here. Remember that SMFM recommends a detailed OB ultrasound exam of the fetus, and that should be done with early onset FGR because up to 20% of cases are associated with fetal or chromosomal abnormalities. And of course, that can have other structural issues as well. So remember, early onset FGR, up to 20% can be associated with a chromosomal issue. So do a detailed level 2 ultrasound. SMFM also reminds us that women should be offered fetal diagnostic testing using chromosomal microarray analysis, or CMA, when fetal growth restriction is detected and there's fetal malformations noted, or there's polyhydramnios, or both regardless of gestational age. Did you get that? So 
chromosomal microarray analysis diagnostic chromosomal testing should be done when FGR finds a concomitant fetal malformation if there's poly and that should be offered at any gestational age. Now, here's a quick clinical pearl. Even though that level 2 sono doesn't show any structural abnormalities, that doesn't mean that baby is in the clear. Although chromosomal abnormalities are more frequent in pregnancies with structural anomalies and FGR, in a systematic review that included fetuses with no structural malformations, the mean rate of chromosomal abnormalities was still 6.4%. So what do we do with that? Well, SMFM recommends that pregnant women be offered prenatal diagnostic testing with chromosomal microarray with unexplained isolated FGR when it's early onset, in other words, less than 32 weeks. So early onset isolated FGR offer diagnostic testing for CMA. And if there's a concomitant structural abnormality or poly, then you should offer CMA at any gestational age. Now, here's the last thing that I want to leave before we continue on. I trained with torch panels for fetal growth restriction, right? Toxo, CMV, herpes virus, but that's been thrown out the window too. SMFM makes it very clear, then they do not recommend screening for toxo, rubella, or herpes in pregnancies with FGR in the absence of other risk factors because they're just, just not very sensitive or specific. However, SMFM does recommend checking for CMV in women who elect to have diagnostic testing of the amniotic fluid in cases of unexplained fetal growth restriction. However, given the low incidence of CMV in cases of FGR, the lack of effective antenatal interventions, and the limited utility of serological testing for CMV in the third trimester, routine infectious serologies may not be warranted in the absence of risk factors or ultrasound markers of fetal infection. All right, family, so what have we learned? There's no longer IUGR, just FGR. There's no longer symmetric or asymmetric, just FGR. And there's different severities from 10th percentile to the 5th percentile, 5th to 3rd, and the most severe is less than the 3rd percentile. We've learned that chromosomal microarray analysis should be offered at any gestational age if there's a structural birth defect or polynoted, and it should be offered as well in isolated FGR when it's early onset. Remember, that's less than 32 weeks. And we've learned that torch panels suck. But if you're going to do diagnostic testing, then CMV can be offered as PCR of the amniotic fluid. Although, honestly, the low incidence of CMV cases, even with FGR presence, eh, makes that somewhat iffy. All right, next we're going to cover things like umbilical artery Doppler and timing of delivery. And what about biophysical profile? Because I mentioned that at the intro. But we're going to have to do that in part two because I don't want this to get too long and boring. All right, so in part two, we're going to cover umbilical artery Doppler. What about biophysical profile? And the most important question is timing of delivery. And how should we deliver? C-section or vaginal birth? Well, we're going to talk about all of that in our next part, which is part two. Guys, thanks for being part of our podcast family. And we'll see you for part two of FGR coming up soon.